1: welcome to healing your family legacy here on the experience of the soul podcast channel innovative evidence-based recovery that helps to identify intergenerational trauma allowing for freedom and embracement of the healing process today episode 64 couples in recovery part one and now your host dr donna bevanley
2: And this is Dr. Donna Bevanley helping you heal your family legacy. As you might remember from our last few sessions, I was discussing sexual addiction and how that impacts not only the individual that has the addiction, but everyone around them. And today I have uh, two very special guests on my show. Um, I'll let them introduce themselves, but I will tell you that these two people have done the most amazing work to heal their marriage uh, as a result of having some pretty serious issues around sexual addiction and I'm so happy that they've agreed to come and talk about their journey. Um so I'm not going to take up a lot of time with my voice today. I would like for you to hear from them. So I would like to first introduce Heidi, and Heidi, uh, tell us a little bit about how your
3: life evolved to set you up to be
2: in the situation in the first place. Sure, thanks.
3: Hi, Donna. Um, I'm Heidi. Uh, I, I would say it's for me, I grew up in, in kind of the perfect storm of uh, addiction. Uh, meaning my parents were there were there were so many alcoholics in my family it's I can't even count them um, and chaos that you know as a small child I was terrified of life and seeking attention at the same time so trying to be as quiet and shy and not noticed as possible but uh, as uh, certainly when I hit my teenage years, looking for adult affirmation, meaning any would do, even if it was inappropriate for men. Um, And because I I didn't have anything steady like that growing up. So as soon as I hit my teens, I was off to the races with my own addictions, looking to feel different than I did. And, and and can you say what those addictions were that you had struggled with? Sure. Um, I am an alcoholic, uh, 13 years almost into recovery, uh, sober. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, you know, for me, immediately, you know, age 13, my first drunk you know where I I I, I when I came to I quickly went okay I'm an alcoholic I know this my mother is one I've seen it and so I you know I I, I went to other drugs because I thought I could do it differently but you know I I I eventually decided that I was was grown up enough that I would just be an alcoholic and not an addict. <laughs> It's more socially. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> for me a drug is a drug is a drug and it doesn't what put into myself. I want more. Um uh, so uh so that was always there. Um but once I'm drunk my or high, my I I I I will do ridiculous things that are not good for me with people who are inappropriate and I tended to be attracted to men who were unavailable and and or alcoholics themselves. Um, So it's it's a pattern that I repeated throughout my Mm -hmm. youth.
2: Okay. Well, thank you. Um, So I'm going to let Matthew now talk about what his childhood was like and how it set him up. For his addiction.
4: All right, hi Donna. It's nice to see you. Um, nice to see you. I uh, I'm the youngest of four sons. Um, my oldest brother is only seven years older than I am, so we were sort of a tribe growing up. Um, my father started his own business when I was very young, probably about a year old, uh, and he was successful. Um, so I'm a child of. Some affluence, although I didn't really recognize it. Uh, also being the youngest, my perception was, was that I was spoiled terribly. I mean, there was very little that I ever wanted that I didn't get. And I think you brought to my attention what I didn't get was much attention from my, from my parents. Um, yeah.
2: And that word spoiled. Yeah. There's really no such thing as a quote spoiled child, right? Yeah. yeah. It's like what you got was stuff in lieu of time, attention and energy, right? That's true. And okay, and, let's just be clear. on Thank that.
4: you. I appreciate <laughs> that. And it's funny, because I, you know, I've been in AA um, for a long time. And again, I'm multi-addicted. I'm a poly drug addict. Um, I got sober uh, in 2003, and I haven't had a drink or a drug in over 18 years now.
2: Congratulations. Thank you.
4: That's a huge deal for a guy like me. Mm-hmm. And um, and what I heard when I was in treatment, uh, I only went to treatment once. It was back then in 2003 I was 44 years old at the time and uh what I heard was something about a hole inside that couldn't be filled and when I look back at my life like that made a lot of sense to me I always wanted something and I would get that something and that was great for about you know a minute or an hour or a day and then the hole was back it just never was filled and uh you know, that includes, you know, that I'm sure that relates to the lack of attention that I had growing up. Sure, um, it does. Uh, because I was the youngest, um, I was exposed to probably inappropriate nuts, probably. I was exposed <laughs> to inappropriate material from a very young age. By the time I was five, the two biggest influences on my life from a from a pop culture standpoint was the Beatles and James Bond. You know, and for a five-year-old, that's a really weird thing. You know, so I'm ni- nineteen sixty-four, and uh, that's what's going through my head as a five-year-old. And uh, then circumstances, which I won't go into the details. Uh, one of my brothers got a subscription to Playboy magazine when he was uh, in middle school, and I discovered those when I was seven years old under my brother's bed, and that just lit me up. And even though I didn't understand anything about sexuality, looking at these photos of these women, I knew it was wrong, um, quote, wrong. Uh, but there was something about the taboo that made it exciting. And so that fired up yeah. the beginning of my, my sex addiction. And I, I didn't know that until my work with you. I had no idea. Um.
2: Yeah, your sex addiction is always one of the primary addictions, yeah, right? I'll, Food and sex. Right. But I had my
4: first drink. You know, people talk about, oh, I remember my first drink. And my answer to that is I don't. I was a toddler, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and because uh, I got to have a sip of beer. I got to have a sip of whiskey when I was six. There was a half a glass of small little glass of wine, you know, with water You know, because I was a sophisticated little kid in a sophisticated society. Um, And that said, I had my first drunk at seven, uh, but I wasn't all that, you know, in love with it. Um, I smoked pot for the first time at 14 years old, and I wasn't turned on. I stole pot from a friend of my brother's. You know, there's no one who, (laughs) you know, I got myself high. Um, And it was it. Like, I was high every day for the rest, you know, until I was 44 years old after that, you know, on one thing or another. And I liked a lot of different, you know, intoxicants. I, you know, I never met yeah. one I didn't like. <laughs>
2: right. So, yeah, the, the drugs combined with the sex really let your brain yeah. up. When you say let you up, it's like we're talking about lighting your brain yeah. up because that's what, what it's about, right? Yep. It's not about your genitals, it's about, your brain
4: absolutely it's about it's about <clears throat> not feeling what i don't want to feel
2: exactly th- which
4: is what the hole was right the hole was this mm-hmm. emptiness and i didn't want to feel it and drugs and sex absolutely made me feel the way i wanted to feel and not feel the way i didn't want to feel mm-hmm. and my life was all about that from then on i mean everything else was just window dressing to this, this endless cycle of, of doing things. And, and it, you know, it turned into a nightmare. I mean, it really did. And it turned into a nightmare a long time ago. Um, Sure. And then I found myself in your offices, what is it, eight years ago or something like that. And, you know, and I was 11 years sober when I came to you. Um, From drugs and alcohol. Drugs and alcohol.
2: And you didn't even know you had a sex addiction. I, you
4: know, I did know it, Donna, but I didn't think there was anything anyone could do about that. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah.
2: Right. Yeah. And so what what occurred that made you um, decide or, you know, what you say, landed in the office, but what was it that occurred that created this? Was it a crisis? Was it just ongoing? What was no, it? No,
4: it was a crisis. Um uh, part of my sex addiction involved seeing uh, prostitutes on a regular basis. And when I started dating Heidi, uh, I weaned myself off of that over the first couple of years of our dating. And, uh, and I kept it a secret, of course. Of course. And, um, uh, and we got married, and I was sure that I had it under control. Um, and I started looking online at websites that promoted prostitution, like, uh, habitually, that's not the right word, compulsively. And I just couldn't stop. And one day I just came out in an angry burst to Heidi that I was stuck in this and, um, and things blew up. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, gosh, I mean, you know. And I hurt this person, and I really, you know, I was in love with her then, and I'm more in love with her now, and it hurts so much that. Uh, and talk about crisis, it was crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I just told her I would do anything. You know, I would do anything, and we wound up in your office.
2: Right. And you know, can you? You don't need to go into a lot of. Uh, Um, explanation, but could you give us a little bit about what that withdrawal was like? Um, Because I've talked about before the withdrawal from sex addiction is some, you know, is some of the most horrific experiences that people
4: go through. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was really weird for me. Um, I, I, Reluctantly went to one of the S programs um, where they said the definition of sexual sobriety was sex with your spouse um, and not with yourself or anyone else. Um, and I was okay with that. And so, you know, when they suggested that I might try 90 days of abstinence, abstinence I said they were out of their mind. Um, I was just going to have sex with my spouse and no one else. And I didn't have to do that. And uh, you suggested at one point that um, my brain was still too lit and I needed to try, not needed to try, I needed to do that. Um, And so.
2: That didn't make you happy. Yeah.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much everything you told me to do or not (laughs) two years didn't make me happy. (laughs) Like that's all there is to it. Um, and the first try at 90 days was, uh, I did it, but it was, you know, I was cheating, um, and not really doing it because you know, there was just a lot of fooling around without actual intercourse. Um, and, uh, at the end of the 90 days, you kind of gave us a green light. And after about a week, you said, yeah, wait a second, this isn't right. You're going to do another 90 days. And, and that was sort of the point of my surrender. Quite frankly, it was like, Oh uh, hell, you know, Um, (laughs) because I know from my experience with being in recovery from drugs and alcohol, that there's only one way to do it. And that's to do everything somebody else tells you to do, whether you like it, whether you understand it, know Mm -hmm. whether you want to none of that stuff matters like it's like my way doesn't work and if i want to change i'm gonna have to do something different
2: and so when you finally the the second time uh when you finally got in got into recovery um what was it like physically to go through that withdrawal do you remember
4: uh um yeah, I mean there was a lot of anxiety that came up um just generally and um uh nervous energy um there were uh, outbursts of anger that were irrational uh mm-hmm. um and you know, a sense of, I, I i was indignant a lot of times. Like, I can't believe that I have to do this. It, it, you know, um, m- my ego was kind of fighting tooth and nail to sort of maintain its presence. Um, and it's tough. It's a tough battle. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: yeah. Can you... Uh, Heidi, can you remember anything else about what it was like when he was uh, going through, what the withdrawal was like for you,
3: living there with him? Sure. Um, You know, as as he was talking, I uh, brought back a lot of memories of the fight. Um, And not that we were, well, we fought some too. But, but sort of the fight to to not to not stay sober on that right to not not uh, you know Matthew kept pushing me to fool around a little bit just a little to cheat it's okay this one won't count you know, we're not. Our- she won't know. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to go all the way. Um, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and and I was, I had skipped ahead and and done a lot of reading because you know I was going to cure this thing. I, I I needed to know everything there was to know, and and, mm-hmm. and I knew, I, I believed that what everything you said was right, and that this was the the way. So. I was fighting him off, you know, <laughs> because I wanted to sure. do it right. I I wanted it to get better or I, I was out. I mean, it, it was a really yeah. tough time. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I to say the least, I, it was where I discovered that I could say no to him. You gave me permission, right? Because mm-hmm. as the wife of a sex addict, I felt I, I had come to believe that the only way to keep him was to always say yes and to no matter what available sexually as possible, because then I could make him happy so that he wouldn't go elsewhere. All were mm-hmm. ridiculous beliefs that set me up for a lot of shame, a lot of like I'm not good enough, I'll never be good enough. Um, so learning to say no and um and standing up for myself were really hard and yeah you said earlier
2: that you started to be sexual when you were like early teens 15, yeah and you said that that was one of the ways that you felt like you could like be acceptable and so this goes, you know, this is another way that it set you up mm-hmm. to be in a relationship with an acting out sex addict person, right? right? And knowing, you know, that must have been horrifying for you to know that he was looking at, at least looking at websites where there was prostitution yeah. and yeah. you going, gee, I don't look like that. So what's wrong with me? Right? Right.
3: He acted like I didn't know about the prostitutes and about all the women he was flirting with online and you know I, I knew about everything. I sure I did. found out almost right away. Sometimes he blurted things out to me mm-hmm. in shame or guilt or anger. Um but you know, I started snooping because I was so insecure. And and I found out everything very quickly. And knowing that his ex-wife was, that his ex-wife had been in magazines, she was a naked model, she was gorgeous, um, how could I ever compete with that, right, and, and then you look at, you know, and he didn't mention the TV stuff, I mean, his, his. He also has a video obsession, I mean, addiction, mm-hmm. and, you know, it was all HBO all the time and staring at, at, you know, preferably young naked women was was something. And so for me, again, how could I compete with that? I was never going to be good enough. I was never going to be interesting enough. I was never going to be, you know, sexy enough. Um Sure. And I
2: think that is one of the huge conflicts for women who are married to somebody that is suffering from sex addiction mm-hmm. is that it's easy to take it on and say, well, this is because I'm not good enough, right. you know, and and that's a shame. What you, what you said, mm-hmm. it's like it's a feeling of shame, which is that feeling that what's wrong with me? There's something essentially wrong with me. If only I could be different right? And you're looking at these pictures and almost every woman in this country could probably identify with that, right? That is what you grew up with. That's what I grew up with. It's like, there's no way that you can compete with those pictures of those naked women in those magazines, who, by the way, are also being victimized, right? (laughs) And and most, you know, I would say, you know, to you, Matthew, and we had this conversation that most men don't recognize that they're victimizing these women yeah. and that, you know, I, th- and what I remember was one of the things that came up for you that really kind of helped you like internalize that was this idea that, well, I'm just entitled to this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Because I'm a guy in our society. It's like, I'm entitled to all this.
4: The interesting thing, and, and I, if you hadn't brought it up, I was going to, Donna, and, and our last battle, you know. <laughs>
2: Yeah, um, when we went to the mat—pun well, <laughs> no intended. Well,
4: I'm watching HBO, but I'm not. You know, I'm not doing any of these other behaviors. And this is quality mm-hmm. television, and you know, a little bit of nudity and sex here and there. I mean, it's kind of artistic license. And
2: <laughs> yeah, the artistic license part. What's yeah. wrong
4: with that? You know, like, yeah. and you just said, you know, you're an addict. You're not entitled. Like that's by right. definition, and. I heard you say that probably a hundred times Sure, um, because I would immediately forget. And I'd go back into, because I don't think when I'm entitled, I don't think I'm entitled. Like well,
2: of there's no. the
4: beauty of it right there. That's the mm-hmm. power of entitlement is it? I'm completely unaware that that's the reality. Right. And it had to be. Pounded into me you know, in a, an incredibly slow pace um, <laughs> that that was that that was the reality and as and as it and as it got a little as the haze as the fog lifted and and you know and that reality that I perceive myself as entitled and that I am an addict. And that an addict who considers himself entitled is doomed. I mean, there it is. That's sure. that's the yeah. chain. Because as long as I think I am entitled, I'm doomed. Yes. And that was sort of the final piece that opened up the doors of recovery for me.
2: And it, it was just such a perfect setup because you have a man who is acts entitled, feels entitled, doesn't realize he's thinking that, right? And so he could do whatever he wants as long as he's not in jail, right? Mm -hmm. As long as that's not happening and you're not in jail, you can do whatever you want and that your expectation of your wife is that she'll do whatever I want. And then Heidi comes in with this belief that she'll never be good enough And in order to be acceptable and not to be abandoned by her husband, she has to accept this. And so your struggle with entitlement and, you know, being in recovery and, you know, viewing your wife as a human being, uh, that's not just also another sexual object. And I know there was more to your marriage than that, but, you know, for the sake of this discussion, That, and then Heidi, you know, it's like had to, what you said, Heidi, learn how to say no. It's like not just give permission, but when you first started to say no, it was really hard work because you'd never done it before and you didn't know that it was okay to say no. And so permission is one thing, practice. Mm On learning how to say no, because I remember when you were first trying to say no, it was almost like you would in you know turn invisible. <laughs> like no,
3: that was a skill I had practiced my whole childhood was becoming invisible. So yes, yes, yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so so it you
2: know the struggle was real, and I you know I I. I am so happy that you guys are willing to have this discussion because I was actually there and I can attest to it, right? I'm not to say, oh well, tell me about what it was like for you over there somewhere. Mm. It was like I remember watching you Heidi try to say no and it was like those that word could barely come out of your mouth, although now I know that you can say it. <laughs> And mean it, and your your sense of being an adult is not threatened at all.
3: No, that and that's thanks to the work. I mean, I'm not. You yeah. know, we talk about Matthew and all the work that he did uh, to recover from from sex addiction and and be in recovery. Uh, mm-hmm. It goes on. Um, yes. but but there was also a lot of work on my part, and and you know I spent. I did your legacy workshops um you know I I had to relearn a or no I had to learn a sense of self because there mm-hmm. was no re right I didn't have it as a child mm-hmm. there was nothing to go back to and there was no basis of it so right. I got you know both dealing with with trust and sh- and, and shame were the biggest impediments I think. And they were the things that I had to learn first to trust myself next that I didn't have to trust anything. Everybody, any, everything everybody said that I had my own gut that I could actually listen to. Sure. Um, And then for
2: all, that must've been, that must've been a freeing and empowering experience for you. To discover that.
3: Yes, it was, but it was not easy. And it was, um, you know, it's it's something that I still, I still do reality checks uh, that you taught me to do. Um, mm-hmm. I still have to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, am I in my adult self? You know, am I really present in the moment to be able to listen to myself as opposed to, The stuff that I make up (laughs) and, you know, but, but, you know, to, to know that how I feel matters, um, because I, you used to call it gaslighting, um, that, Mm -hmm. that, that it was gaslighting. Right. (laughs) And, (laughs) um, and, and today, you know, I know that my opinion, my thoughts, my process matters, Um, you know, and, 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 and I still have to do the reality check to make sure that I'm grounded in, in what's going on before I, you know, and you taught me other skills about learning how to ask what's true and what's not, and to gather research rather than just going with, Mm -hmm. you know, but, but, yeah. There was there was a lot of work that needed to be done for me to be whole.
2: And so um, I appreciate you both being so candid with me and so open about what it was like for you. And, you know, kind of what happened, although I want to hear more about that. And so um, let's let's uh, pick this up on our next show.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing Your Family Legacy here on the Experience of the Soul podcast channel. This channel is made possible because of listeners just like you. If you would like to support the channel with your tax-deductible contribution on an ongoing basis or through a one-time gift, head over to experienceofthesoul.com slash support. Healing Your Family Legacy is copyright 2022, Dr. Donna Bevanley, all rights reserved. Our theme music is composed by Dave Croft and used with permission. The Experience of the Soul podcast channel is a production of 818 Studios.